I think you're going to have face-to-face -face interactions that will be complemented by digital. I think you're going to move to a world of, of what we've referred to as the hybrid rep. So the rep has the ability to both engage face-to-face, -face, email, remote meetings, whatever the case may be. And I, I, I think that's where the industry is going to go. And I think you're going to see different segments of that, you know, by therapeutic, by therapeutic classes. I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of Contextual Intelligence. Today, I'm joined by Doug Caldwell, Vice President of Commercial Strategy at Viva Systems. Doug focuses especially on emerging and mid-sized companies as they mature their commercial operations in all facets. Prior to his time at Viva, Doug spent 10 years at AstraZeneca in a variety of roles, so he's seen the life sciences commercial process from many perspectives. Doug, welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Clay. Thanks for having me. So, Doug, you and I have known each other for a little while, so I'm familiar with your background, but for our listeners who don't, can you kind of just briefly take us through your journey? I know I didn't mention in your intro that you were at Lockheed Martin as an engineer for quite a while, but tell us a little bit how you started there and then ended up at AstraZeneca and now at Viva. I'm, I'm impressed by your research. Yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, I think there's a, most people that I work with nowadays have no idea that I actually started in the defense industry. Uh, started with GE Aerospace, which then became Lockheed Martin. Uh, classic, classic uh, sort of defense industry job. Get searched every day on the way in, get searched every day on the way out, work behind the vault door, the whole thing. Lockheed was starting a consulting practice. Um, and, I, and that was my first foray into data warehousing. I was still working at Lockheed Martin and worked on the, the first data warehouse that Citibank ever had. At the time, it was one of the largest data warehouses. And I thought, wow, this consulting thing's pretty cool. Um, so I left Lockheed and I joined Coopers and Librand and sort of, I got sort of phase two of my career. Uh, and that's where I started. Um, I sort of dipped my toe into the pharmaceutical world. Pricewaterhouse took over and, and I was somehow ended up in the communication and entertainment practice. So I did a ton of work for ABC and News Corp and AOL back in the day, all around analytics and insight. Uh, ended up going to AstraZeneca, spent 10 years at AZ, uh, a great, great part of my career. Uh, I ran all the insights and analytics functions from an IT perspective. Um, got to be really, really close to the commercial business, sat on the commercial leadership team. After 10 years or so, I decided maybe it was time to, to recharge and, and, and do something else. I left and was consulting for a little while, and I decided to join Viva. Um, you may laugh, Clay. I decided to join Viva in my mind. It was an 18-month test, right? And if I didn't like it, I was going to leave and go back to consulting. And, and here we are over five years later. So it, uh, it must have worked out pretty well. Very nice. Good. Well, one of the things I'm always interested in when somebody has changed perspectives, they've kind of seen the same business problem or the same area of a company's uh, process from different perspectives, um, you've seen it from a couple. So you've seen it uh, at AstraZeneca and being embedded in it. You've seen it at Viva supporting it. You've had a variety of different roles at both companies. What, what kind of changed as you shifted your perspective, maybe moving from AstraZeneca to Viva, or did it even change when you were changing roles within either company? I think the common thing across when I was at AZ and when I was at, when, and, and now that I'm at Viva, is, is the idea that at the end of the day, you know, we're trying to make a, a field team more e efficient in how they do their job, more effective when they're engaging with customers. 
So whether I was doing that specifically for AstraZeneca and trying to drive a new commercial model or a new commercial strategy on the manufacturer side, or now that I'm on the, on the services side, on the, on the Viva side, right, in creating the capabilities and the technologies and the platforms, whether that's, you know, the, 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 technology, the software side of it, the data side of it, you know, whatever the case may be, at the end of the day, we're all trying to affect how a product goes to market and, and how a field team either promotes that product from a sales perspective or enables that process from a, from a medical perspective and, and providing, you know, that deep, that deep scientific insight. Interesting. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. One thing that's been a theme on this podcast for the last couple episodes, obviously, is around 2020. And, you know, life sciences is not typically an industry known for embracing change quickly or acting on change quickly. But what happened last year, you know, caused and required that that uh, flexibility from everyone in the industry to be able to adapt to change. What changed most or what are some of the biggest shifts in priorities that you've seen uh, amongst the customers that you work with in the last year? How have they pivoted to adjust? The industry, our industry, the pharmaceutical industry has been very much about face to face. Um, And so the industry as a whole has shifted, you know, very much to a ton of face to face and a little bit of digital to now a ton of digital and a little bit of face to face. I think what the industry didn't maybe fully appreciate was the some of the under, how some of the underlying processes would be stressed in that world, whether that's preference and managing a, a customer's preference, whether that's consent, whether that's content creation, whether that's your content refresh strategy. I think those are the things that, that the industry in this, in this you know, crazy world of 2020 have, have come to realize. I mean, digital is the easy answer, but there's a lot of things underneath the covers that actually make that digital interaction happen. And what do you think about the industry's ability to move at speed? I know that's something that I've heard Viva talk about frequently. How have you seen that kind of term come to life in the way that you know, your customers operate? Isn't this saying something like necessity is the mother of, of invention? I would say that um, the pandemic is the, is, the, is the mother of innovation. You know, not to get all philosophical or whatever, right? But I believe that the pandemic in and to itself will make the industry better than it was previously because we are being forced to, to leverage and utilize different channels. We've been forced to go to market differently. And we've been talking about that, Clay, for you know, 15 years, yeah. right? You got to get away from driving the business off of gut feel and get into driving the business off of data and, and leveraging channels and being able to assign the right kind of resource, the, the most cost-effective resource to the, to the right customer. As an industry, we've seen access dwindle over the last 10 years. The pandemic, it, it didn't stop just the dwindling of the access. It just flat out cut it off. So customers were forced in that environment and the ones that were most successful were able to recognize that they weren't going to get it right from the jump. They weren't going to be 100% perfect, but they were going to migrate to this world of digital. They were going to find new and different ways of contacting and interacting with physicians. And I mean, honestly, there was there was really no choice in the matter. Yeah, no, absolutely. And is it the kind of thing that you think the industry would have gotten there eventually, but what was taking 
years now had to be done in months or even weeks? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we talk about digital disruption and, and, and we've thrown that term around for quite some time. I think the, the pandemic was the digital disruptor that, that moved the industry leaps and bounds forward. I think eventually mm -hmm. it would have got there, but I still think there are people in industry that believe, and, the, and, and hey, don't get me wrong, right? The face-to-face -face interaction is one of the most impactful interactions that you're going to have. But, I believe, and I believe people think that, that, that that was going to continue. I think there would have been those that can, you know, didn't want to jump on sort of that digital bandwagon. And I think with the pandemic, they, they had to come back and they had to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's the unfair, well, maybe not the unfair question, but the impossible question to answer to that everybody wonders about, speculates on, which is how much, when, when we do return back to some normalcy, how far do we move back to the old methods? I don't think anybody thinks we're going to go all the way back to the way business operated in 2019 because people have learned new digital habits. They've, uh, HCPs have learned different ways that they can you know, provide care uh, virtually and they've seen the benefit of it. Even conversations I've had with different doctors that I've seen and I kind of ask them questions, you know, how have you embraced this and how has this been beneficial? And they see the benefit. It forced them to learn new new skills and new ways of operating. But how far back do we go? You know, how do you think face-to-face -face still remains very prevalent or do you think this was the, catalyze, the catalyzing effect that needed to move us much more fully into a digital interaction? I think, you know, I mean, so if I, if I so this is looking into my crystal ball, which you never know how, where, how, how good that crystal ball is. Yeah. Um, I fully believe that face-to-face -face is gonna come back. I think you're going to have face-to-face -face interactions that will be complemented by digital. I think you're going to move to a world of, of what we've referred to as the hybrid rep. So the rep has the ability to both engage face-to-face, -face, email, remote meetings, whatever the case may be. Um, and I, I, I think that's where the industry is going to go. And I think you're going to see different segments of that, you know, by therapeutic, by therapeutic classes. That makes sense. Yeah. Doug, let's pivot for a second into the market that you work most frequently with, and that's around emerging and mid-sized companies. We haven't touched on that, that group that often on this podcast, so I'm really, I'm really keen to get your perspective. Uh, and let, let's start with, can you maybe just briefly share, how do you see the needs and challenges of companies, of mid-sized companies, emerging companies, as compared to the the large global biopharma companies? How are their needs and challenges different? Or maybe how are they the same? At the, at the absolute lowest level, they're both trying to, to market and sell products, right? So at that level, they're the same. The thing that I think is so cool about being in the emerging and mid-sized space is the speed in which things happen, right? So I don't have to go through a lot of red tape. I don't have to go through a lot of process. Like it's a double-edged sword, right? I don't have to go through a lot of those processes and I don't have to jump through a lot of hoops. I can get things done. But then on the flip side, a lot of the processes that I was dependent on when I was in big pharma or you know, when, 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 when leaders were in big pharma, they had a challenge. So now they're like, well, not only do I, I can make the decision, but now I have to pull the change through <laughs> because there's not this whole team of people that surrounds me and, and allows me to do that. So there's the, the beauty of speed there's the beauty of less red tape, but then there's the challenge of, I got to do more things 
And I got to pull the change through myself as opposed to having a team that can help me do that. Do you think then the way that Viva partners with those companies is any different? Do you tailor the way that you support your clients, whether they are big pharma or whether they're midsize or they're emerging companies or no? Do you say, no, there's such commonality in what we're trying to do for them? Back to your original point of at the end of the day, they're trying to market and sell product to their audience. Or do you say, no, those differences are stark enough that we do need to tailor the way that we support them. So we give them the kind of partnership that they need, which differs a little bit depending on their size. Everybody's running the same version of the platform and everybody has the exact same software, whether you're AstraZeneca or Lilly or or whoever you are, or, or you're a very, very small biotech. So the platform in and to itself is the same. But I think when, when I talk to emerging and mid-sized companies, it's much more about how does the platform solve multiple business problems, right? So from the fact that you have to manage customer information, whether you're gonna, the, the analytics that you need to have, you, the, the fact of your execution and, and bringing all those tools together from an execution perspective or the integration of content. When we talk to emerging and mid-sized, it's very much about platform solutions. It's how does Viva fit within a bigger ecosystem. But as, as we think about the platform, the platform is providing value. Whereas in the enterprise world, right, there's many more bespoke solutions. And so companies are thinking about, you know, where does Viva fit? Where are the unique solutions that they already have in place? How do they connect? So it, it's a little bit of a different, a little bit of a different conversation. Yeah, and that makes sense. That's the, I think the same way that, that we see it as well as we, we talk with different companies, because obviously in a, in a large organization, a lot of it is around integration with other parts of their technology stack, their commercial technology stack. It's about uh, very specific delivery of what they're looking for. Whereas in, in midsize, they, as much as you can deliver in, in one package that can be versatile, that can allow them basically that multiplier effect of, I don't have these resources that maybe some of the large companies do. So if you can help me replicate those sorts of resources, if you can help me accomplish what those resources at a larger company might do, then that's going to allow my, my team or my effort to feel bigger and to accomplish more and more quickly. So I think that's, that's something that we see too. Well, and I think the other thing, just to sort of build on that, um, so as you, as you think about sort of your complete commercial stack, we're talking about sort of that, that, that overarching approach, right? But I think a lot of companies, again, you don't have the resources that you have in the bigger company, right? So when you start to think about, you know, SOPs and processes and whatnot, you know, whether you're, whether you're starting with our content you know, systems of promo mats or medcoms, right? A lot of those, essentially the, the SOP in and to themselves are already embedded in the software. So by the fact that you can start there, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's very much an accelerator, not only from, a, a, you know, time to market, but all the, all the processes and procedures that you need to define for your organizations. That's sort of packaged within the whole thing. Yeah. How about their ability? So we, we talked about speed earlier. And one of the things you mentioned is that at a midsize or emerging company, you don't have the layers. Um, sometimes you don't have the resulting resources along with it, but you don't have the layers and the process you need to go through. Did you see midsize and emerging companies able to pivot more quickly last year when things were changing because of that? Companies that were launching products 
in the midst of the pandemic, were able to very, very quickly go from a strategy that was a predominantly face-to-face, feet-on-the-street strategy to, you know, essentially slamming the brakes on that strategy at the beginning of the pandemic and being very, very, to, to be able to quickly then pivot to a digital launch strategy and sort of rethink everything from territory sizes to go to market strategies to content to everything else. Yeah. Right. So I think it was the smaller companies that were able to respond more quickly, especially in the context of launching in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah. And with regard, obviously, a lot of our our focus is around artificial intelligence, machine learning, its application to the commercial process. As you work with midsize and emerging companies, where are they on that adoption path in terms of their comfort level and appreciation for what intelligence can do in their commercial process? I think some of them are grasping it and embracing it. Um, I think the more advanced ones are embracing it. I think Clay, there's, there's so many moving parts in some of these emerging companies and so many moving parts, especially for companies that maybe only have one product and they're trying to get that product launched, that they're so hyper-focused on launch, right? The, the, the whole idea of leveraging this data and all these capabilities maybe lags a bit, but I, I fully believe, and I see it with, with many of our companies as they evolve from that initial launch into becoming a more commercialized organization, or you know, they're, they're more mature from their commercial business process. The, the ideas of how do I leverage data how do I use data to drive my business? How do I how do I go from, you know, like I said earlier, right, this whole gut feel mentality to driving to really having an intelligent engagement, leveraging all the data and sort of the, the omni-channel sort of experience? That's where the organizations are going. Big, little, or or medium, they're gonna embrace it and, and I see them embracing it more and more every single day. When you're trying to reach thousands of HCPs and you're trying to segment a market or you're trying to create a personalized experience for them, that's one thing. But when you're trying to find and pinpoint one HCP in the country who's treating a recently diagnosed patient, it's, it's that laser focused. How does the game change when you're talking about rare disease and, and what comes along with that in terms of finding exactly who would benefit most from what you can share with them? By definition, a product has orphan designation or is a rare disease product if there are less than 200,000 patients in the United States, according to the FDA, right? I work with customers. I have worked with customers. I just got off a call before we, before we started this podcast with a company that believes there are roughly 2,500 patients in the U.S. that will be able to use their product. I've been on, com- I've been on calls with companies that have as few as 250 patients in the entire United States. Right. So the first and foremost problem is to your point, right? It's finding those patients and then finding the HCPs that are treating those patients. And so most of those companies are doing are, are doing a, a lot of different analytics, providing a lot of different statistical model, you know, call it AI, call it, you know, machine learning, call it, you know, call it whatever you want to call it, right? In the in the exercise of where are these patients presenting themselves? Right. There's there's a lot of work done in the context of what are leading indicators of something that's going on in an office so that then I can tell a sales rep, hey, you need to get into this practice 
because there's been a lab test or there's been a piece of claims data or there's been something that's happened in that office that's informing that, 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 that there is a patient that's being treated within that office. So, so that's, that's one piece of the puzzle. I think the other piece of it that some of the more advanced companies are getting to is, is you start to think about referral networks, right? So you start to say the fact that, you know, what's the saying? You know, it, it takes a village to, to, to raise a child, right? Sometimes it takes a village to treat a patient. So whether that patient started with their, with their family practice then was, you know, referred to a, some sort of a specialist and then to another specialist to ultimately where that, that you know, the, the proper diagnosis occurred, right? They're leveraging and trying to build out these referral networks so that they can, they can try to identify those patients or identify those scenarios much earlier in the process. So again, you can find at the, at the point of, of, of engagement, where do I need to send that that, that sales rep into that office to make sure that they're servicing the, that, that HCP in the right way. Mm -hmm. For sure. Interesting. Well, the, the other thing, uh, one other area of the commercial process that we've seen evolve or start to evolve, and it's, I think it's different at each, in each customer organization and each process, which is the, the interplay or the, the intentional lack of interplay between commercial and medical for all the obvious reasons. But there have been, especially in the last year, when there's a time of a lot of change or need for innovation, the role of the MSL really grows because HCPs are obviously hungry for information to understand how they can adapt to what's going on around them. Um, the field medical teams are critical to a brand strategy, but we need to be sensitive to how commercial and medical uh, coexist. What evolution in the market have you seen in that way, or what are you observing as you work with different customers as they think about uh, medical and what it can do for HCPs? So I gave you a couple different perspectives. Um, I think diseases are becoming more complicated, and the mechanism of actions and how that 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 medicine that drug you know operates inside of the body is becoming much much more complicated. Um, I think all therapeutic classes from from the primary care world the whole way through the oncology and specialty world and into the rare disease world are selling based on science. They're selling on outcomes, right? They're they're leveraging um, health economics and outcomes based research. They're leveraging real world evidence. Right. But there's only so much a sales rep can know and can understand. And so they're 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 hiring more and more reps that can have a more detailed scientific conversation. But organizations are focused on how do I seamlessly get that MSL into that office? Right. And so whether that's that MSL going in to talk to an HCP that may ask, you know, some sort of question that the sales rep can't answer or whether that's the, the, the medical science liaison, the, the, the MSL, you know, working with you know, influencers in the marketplace, working with key opinion leaders, having conversations with influencers, right? So, so there, is a, there is a huge piece of the coordination maybe of a, a, a physician or somebody asking a question and then being able to seamlessly get the MSL in there to, to, to have the conversation. I think the other part of it, Clay, and, and, and sometimes I think people sell this short, is that MSLs, the medical side of the organization, 
are really a key linchpin in the launch of any product. So as the product is coming to market, right, there's going to be a couple of things that need to occur as they, you know, I'll use the term prep the market. Sometimes you need to teach the, the, the industry and in total that the disease even exists, right? A disease that only affects 250 people in the entire United States. There's a lot of physicians that don't even know that that disease exists. So there's, there's a piece of it that's educating on the disease. There's a piece of it that's educating on the, how the product works, right? So, so the MSL is critical, whether they're talking to, you know, heads of managed care organizations, whether they're talking to thought leaders in medical schools, you know, whether they're, they're engaging the HCP themselves, right? They have a critical, critical role in how the product, is, how you prepare the market for the entry of that product into the market. So Doug, I want to ask you about one thing you said there, which is you think that aspect gets underplayed or undervalued a bit in terms of the essential role of the MSL. Why do you think that is? And is that, is that changing? All I'm saying is I think sort of the people in and around the life sciences industry maybe don't understand the, the, the impact that the MSL can have or how I think there's, there's few people that understand how a product goes from the development world, the R&D world. There's a huge piece of work that occurs in, in translating, for lack of a better term, how the product works from the, from the R&D world and then informing that into the commercial world. That medical organization, like your medical affairs team, is a huge piece in transitioning the product from the R&D world into the commercial world so, th so that you have, so that you're, you're, you're bringing forward the differentiators, right, from a, from a product perspective, that's going to then feed a little bit into your brand strategy. But also, you know, the, it's when those MSLs then take that and, and go out into the market. I just think there's a lot, in the pharma industry, there's a lot of siloed roles. And I think there are, I guess my point was, there are a few roles that understand that end-to-end -end process in all the things that it takes to get a product from, you know, NDA submission, BLA submission, the whole way to commercialization. Yeah, and that makes sense. And obviously, and when we have uh, complexity increasing and time and available and, and kind of brain space to focus on these topics decreasing, then obviously there's a greater need for the individual who can connect those, who can kind of take the complexity out of a topic and give you the information that will allow you to provide better care and understand um, that situation better. So that's natural. And I think the other point that you're making is that obviously if we think about where emphasis is on the selling of a product or the sharing of information that will help ultimately provide uh, benefit or, or support to the selling of that product and ultimately care, it makes sense that businesses focus more time on the actual selling process. And, and I think what the MSL can do can be incredibly valuable to the overall process and to the brand strategy. It's a, it's a huge piece of, if, if you don't prepare the market appropriately, I mean, the reality of the matter is you will know whether your product is successful or not in the first six months when it's in the marketplace, right? The first six to eight months of a commercial launch is unbelievably important. And it's surprising as to how many fall short of expectation. 
ensuring that you're going to get the adoption and make sure that the, the thought leaders and the influencers in the organization know what's or in, in the industry know what's happening all comes through that medical affairs organization and the MSL is a key part of that. Yeah. Well, Doug, you've been very good to allow us to hop across a variety of different topics. It's, it's helpful because you've got such a versatile background, um, which makes me very interested to see how our Doug Caldwell in context section goes here, because we're going to see what informed that versatile background. So I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, and I'm going to ask you the first question that we ask everyone, which is, who has been an influence on your career that might surprise us? I have, a, I have a degree in applied mathematics. I have a, a master's degree in computer science. I am an analytical guy and have been in and around math what it feels like all my life. My mom will continue to tell you the story, and I actually remember this. Back in middle school, which was a long, long time ago, I had an algebra teacher, and I, I don't know if I did bad on a test or I wasn't paying attention in class. He came up to me and told me, you will never, ever do anything in the world of mathematics. And to this day, his name was Mr. Leitner. And to this day, I would love to go back. I'm sure he's passed by this time. This was a long, long time ago. I would love to go back and have the conversation with him and say, hey, I think I did all right in the world of, of analytics and, and leveraging my math abilities. Oh, man, that's always tough there. Like so many inspirational teacher stories out there, but then there are also a handful of those that become extremely motivating like that one right there. Uh, <laughs> that's too bad. Well, so if money was not a factor, Doug, what career would you most like to pursue? That one's pretty easy, actually. Um, so I'm a bit of a workout junkie and I love training for and racing triathlons. Um, so if I could be anything, I would either be a trainer or a triathlon coach. Um, and, and Clay, it wouldn't be that I want to train athletes that I think are going to win. I want to work with and train people that have set these audacious goals for themselves. They, they're, they're shooting for this massive goal. You know, whether that's, you know, finishing a, a sprint triathlon or a half Ironman or whatever the case may be, you know, people that want to fundamentally change their perspective, whether that's from a, a weight perspective, a mindset perspective, and they want to do that by chasing some goal. Um, I think endurance sports are, are over the top. I, I absolutely love it. And if, if I could do anything, it would it would definitely be a triathlon coach. Nice. I'm seeing that that work ethic show up here because you got to have a work ethic to do triathlons. That's for sure. Um, okay. All right. So on the flip side, what profession would you most not want to pursue no matter what it paid? I guess I would probably go with something given that I'm so much on the analytical side, like anything. I can't imagine doing anything in the arts or anything that's like, like creative. Um, that's, that would, that would go very, very badly for me. So I, I would stay, I would stay any away from, from anything in, in, in that realm. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, it's an interesting transition then into our next question. What, which is, what is the best book, film, or show you've enjoyed recently and why? I am a huge Villanova basketball fan. And in 2016, after Villanova won the national championship, Jay Wright wrote a book called Attitude. And I think that book does a great job of sort of the bridge between athletics and business. 
So in that book, he talks a lot about developing culture. He talks a lot about um, expecting something bad to happen and being prepared to handle being prepared to handle the adversity. The other piece that he talks about, which I think is unbelievably relevant to the business world, is the fact that everybody within the Villanova system has a role. And that role is very, very important to the overall success of the team, right? So you may be an end of the bench guy. You may be a manager that's handing out water bottles and towels. You may be the star, right, of the, of the team. You may be a coach. You may be a strength coach. But every one of those people has a role. They recognize the role. And no role is more important than any other role. And he talks a lot about that. And my, my, my son is a, a, is a track coach in, in college. And I was literally just talking to him about this book and, and telling him that he should think about some of those principles. So I, I, that's the one that probably comes to mind off the top of my head. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I'm a, I'm a Syracuse grad and a Syracuse basketball fan, but I don't have quite the uh, positive recent past that Villanova does. So I can, I can only hope or, or be envious. Um, all I miss right, the so, days of the old Big East. I know. So do I. So do I. Um, so you're at a family gathering and your eight-year-old nephew asks you what you do for a living. What do you tell him? Um, at, the, at the highest level, Viva helps get medicines, helps get medicines discovered and then get the medicine to very, very sick people and help them get better. That's sort of the highest level of how I would explain to them what Viva does. I would then tell them that I help our customers understand how to use our technology to market and sell that product. So how do, how do those companies teach the, the doctors and teach the patients about the product? So that, so that they can get to pro the right product to the right patient and, and ultimately make that patient better. Very nice. All right, this one I'm really looking forward to. This is our last question. So Doug, it's your ultimate dinner party of four. Who is in attendance and what is on the menu? So the first person that I would include would be Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer saw the industry grow and expand like no one else. He saw purses, you know, they played for purses back in the day that were thousands of dollars. Today, they play for purses of millions of dollars. He spent the beginning of his career driving around in a car with a bunch of his buddies going from tournament to tournament. Nowadays, he, he would have been flying around in a private jet, right? And not only was he successful in, in, in that realm, he also turned that into a very, very profitable business. So he became a very, very powerful and profitable business person. So I think there is a ton that, that could be learned from him and, and, and a ton of great stories that, that he would be able to tell. I think the second person I sort of already sort of, you know, showed my cards, um, huge Villanova basketball fan. I would love to have uh, I would love to have Jay Wright, head coach of the, of the Wildcats at dinner um, just to understand how he builds that program, how he builds that culture how it works. And I think he would be able to tell some great stories of behind the scenes uh, hoops. The, the third person that I think I would invite to dinner would be Martin Luther King. I would love to, you know, if you think about, you know, him as a civil rights activist, if you think about the impact he had on race relations in the, in the, in the late 50s and early 60s, 
I just think there's a ton, a ton that could be that could be learned from him. And I just think it would be a, it would be a fascinating conversation to understand what what he thinks about the about the world today. Excellent. So 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 this is how it's going to work, Clay. I'm not sure that Martin Luther King is a golfer, right? So I'm going to substitute my son in. And we're going to play 18 holes of golf, my son, Jay, in, in, in Arnold, right? Then we're going to meet up with Martin Luther King, and we're going to have a nice cold beer after the round of golf, right? Maybe a couple appetizers. And then we're going to go in for dinner. We're going to have a, uh, a steak, probably like a surf and turf kind of a thing. A steak that just absolutely melts in your mouth. And then uh, a nice bit of lobster tail to go along and, and, and complement that steak. That's going to be uh, that's going to be the deal. That is fantastic! Wow. So two things: one, I would like it to be the dinner party of five, and I'm now inviting myself. And two, I cannot accuse you of, of not giving this thought. That is very well planned out. That sounds excellent. <laughs> so, uh, Doug, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really interesting conversation, uh, and really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Clay, it was fun. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, you can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.